Well, welcome. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. Um, this is the last in our series of conversations about Jesus, stories of Jesus. I, I, I heard something this week that was a, a, an Oxford professor wrote a, a book review in the New York Times about a book that was written on church history. And here's what he said in, in that book review. I live with the puzzle of wondering how something so apparently crazy can be so captivating to so many millions of my species. Now, I can't speak for all Christians, but I can speak for many of us in saying that, 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 that this story is captivating for us for many reasons, but primarily for three. One, because of our considered belief that it's true. And by considered, I mean well-reasoned. Our well-reasoned belief that the story is true. Secondly, because of the implications of the story. And thirdly, because of the impact of, that this story has made on our lives. And all three of those ideas pulse through the story that Kingston and Diane read for us this morning. Again, the last in our, uh, last and epic story in our series, uh, Stories of Jesus. So let's have a look. First of all, we're captivated by something so apparently crazy because there are so many reasons to believe it. Now, last week, we began looking at the, the last tumultuous week of Jesus' life, and on Sunday, he entered Jerusalem like a conquering hero. It was a drop-the-mic moment. On Monday, he, he went to the temple and caused a dramatic scene. He overturned tables of money changers and sacrifice sellers, and whatever goodwill he had gained on Sunday, he lost it on Monday. On Tuesday, he entered the temple area again, once again, engaging in yet another conflict with the religious leaders and professors. Then he left Jerusalem, climbed partway up the Mount of Olives, and spent some time teaching his disciples. Scripture also indicates that Tuesday is the day that Judas negotiated how and when to betray Jesus. The stories are silent about Wednesday. It was probably a day of rest and relaxation in Bethany. They were no doubt exhausted. On Thursday, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. It was a remarkable and very memorable meal. And at the end of the evening, he retired to the Garden of Gethsemane, about halfway up the Mount of Olives. Uh, and he intended to spend the evening in prayer with his disciples. They slept he prayed. And very late that night, Judas led a group of Roman soldiers to the location and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Jesus was examined, taken into Jerusalem, and examined through the late hours of Thursday night and the early hours of Friday morning. And then during the day Friday, the trial wrapped up and Jesus was crucified and killed. That was a horrible death. Crucifixion, as you may know, is death essentially by suffocation. The victim must raise themselves on their hands and feet in order to free the ribcage and the throat, free it for oxygen, both to take it in and to breathe it out. This would have been excruciatingly painful for Jesus because his hands and feet were not bound to the cross, as typically was the case, but they were nailed to the cross. And then eventually the muscles in the shoulders and the legs give out and the body can no longer extend itself. Breathing becomes increasingly shallow until the victim passes out from pain and exhaustion and lack of oxygen. And then they eventually suffocate on their own collarbone. With Jesus, because the soldiers were worried about the Jewish Sabbath, they hurried his death with a sword plunge into the chest cavity. 
Now, you know, one of the primary reasonable explanations for the whole story of the resurrection is called the swoon theory. This is actually what most Muslims believe about the resurrection. According to this theory, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He was overcome and he appeared to be dead. And then the cool of the tomb woke him up. Perhaps. But it's important to remember that the Romans were experts in death by crucifixion. Experts. And it's hard to imagine that a resuscitated Jesus got out of the tomb and then how his broken, bloodied, and bruised figure inspired a revolution. It doesn't seem likely to me. Saturday was quiet. We have to use our imaginations, but we can be certain of a few things. We can be certain that his first followers were deeply grieved. We can be certain that they needed to process they were, they'd given up their lives for a vision that now lay dead in a tomb. They were gratified that one of the Jerusalem leaders, one of the professors, had, had given up his tomb for Jesus so there was at least a place to go honor him, but the movement was dead. There was going to be no gathering military. There would be no revolt against Rome. The religious leaders would not be proven wrong. There would be no more parades. It was over. They were a few days' journey from home in Galilee, and they would have had limited supplies. More importantly, they had no direction and no leadership. So what now? Who should they listen to, and what should they do? As I said, they would have needed to grieve. They would have needed to process what happened, and then how to get back home, how to get back to their lives. They had no expectation of a resurrection. I repeat, they had no expectation of this. They wouldn't have even known to make this up. Now, some people have argued that there are other ancient stories of pharaohs or kings or, or heroes who come back from the dead. According to this argument, the disciples may have just copied these stories as a way of elevating their hero or bragging about Jesus. Actually, you should know this kind of story is very, very rare, but it does exist. However, you should also know this kind of story is decidedly not Jewish, this is not how their thinking worked. This is not how their faith worked. They had trouble believing even in the idea of the Son of God on the planet. Remember, they were people whose origin, religion didn't even allow for images of God, much less a literal human representing God. They would have had very serious trouble believing in a resurrected body. Saturday was not a good day. Then on Sunday... Somehow, Jesus' body was reanimated. Life literally re-entered his body. The sealed tomb was broken open. The Roman guards were stunned and overcome, and Jesus walked out of the grave. Just that. Later that day, two of the first followers were leaving Jerusalem. The account that Kingston read for us. They were headed for Emmaus, which was a small village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. They were probably beginning their journey back to Galilee. It seems it was fairly late in the day when they had started their journey. They, they evidently only had designs of going to this village, about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem. Now, these two that are talked about in the story were not part of Jesus' discipleship school of 12 special students, by the way. And I think that's very interesting. Because if Jesus' resurrection was an elaborate hoax or a myth, it certainly involved a lot of people. And did you notice, Luke, go read this story later from Luke chapter 24. 
Luke gives the name of one of the two travelers. His name was Cleopas in the story Kingston read for us. Now, many New Testament scholars have suggested that this is a kind of, this kind of reference is for verification. In the modern world, when we want to verify a source, we use footnotes. This book, this page, this edition, this chapter. But in the ancient world, there was no such thing as footnotes. So they would use time signatures or names of people as verification points. In other words, Luke seems to be saying, his name is Cleopas. If you want to hear the story for yourself, go ask him. There are so many reasons to believe this story. Reasons to believe it. This is the first reason so many of us are captivated by it. Now, I've mentioned this before at Gateway, but I love the quote from Chuck Colson about the resurrection. Colson was uh, special counsel to President Richard Nixon during the Watergate era. And even if you're a middle schooler, you you have heard of Watergate. Uh, He was the first person in the, the Nixon entourage to actually go to prison for what happened at Watergate. Colson said this about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They wouldn't have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. We learned, yeah, we learned from today's story that there were far more than 12 people involved in the Jesus story. It may not be true, but I encourage you, if you doubt it, to look at the evidence. Don't just dismiss this story because... Well, that kind of thing never happens. Of course it doesn't. Christianity agrees. This is the ultimate one-off event. So if you examine the case for the resurrection, I think you'll be surprised, Dr. Oxford Professor. It's not the slam-dunk, ridiculous case that you might think. You know, Jesus tells these two travelers later in the conversation that they were foolish not to recognize and to believe. And that word foolish It has a special significance in in Jewish thought. It doesn't just mean, you know, that you're not very smart. It it means something more like arrogantly dismissive of knowable truth. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The psalmist is making the point, just look at the evidence. The, the, the stars sing about God. God has made his truth plain to us. Our bodies testify to the truth. There's no better, there's no other explanation for so much of what we actually see. Did you know that there is a national holiday for atheists? Not many people know this in America. We celebrated it this past week on April 1st. Anyway, The first reason millions of us are captivated by this story is because there are so many reasons to actually believe it. The second reason so many of us are captivated by this story is because of the implications of it. I say this every year at Gateway because we need to remember it. If this story is true, it changes everything. Everything. Okay, bottle of water. And I treat this bottle of water very casually because there are 19 other bottles 
just like it back there. And it's, it's water. I mean, it's, it's important. I need to drink a lot of it. The older I get, the more I learn about how much of this I need to drink. But I treat it very casually. I'm not, I'm not captivated by this. But if this bottle had in it the cure to all cancer, oh my goodness, I would treat this with very special care. I would be captivated by this bottle. So eventually, a stranger joins the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. It's Jesus, but uh, Luke explains to us that they are kept from recognizing him. That's his word. And isn't that interesting? I mean, were they just so dumbfounded that they, they didn't recognize him? Or were they in shock and they just didn't notice? Maybe. But the text seems to apply more than that. I mean, did Jesus somehow keep them from recognizing him? And, and was this supernatural? Or was he wearing a disguise? Clark Kent pulled it off by just putting glasses on. But you get the sense that there's more going on here than that. What really interests me, though is where did Luke get this story? He's the only one to record it. My theory is that he interviewed Cleopas. In other words, I think he got the story from the source. I think somewhere along the way, that's how he remembered the name. I think somewhere along the way, someone must have told him about this story, and he went and sought out Cleopas to hear it for himself. I want you to look at how Luke introduces his whole biography, his whole account of Jesus. Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. Many things have undertaken, to, uh, ha, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now look at this sentence. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke investigated this stuff to confirm it. Now, when Jesus joined the travelers, he asked them uh, what they'd been talking about. And their response is fascinating. Look at this later. They said to him, in effect, are you crazy? You know, are you the only person around here who doesn't know what's happened? What in the world have you been doing? By implication. That's what they're asking him, of course. And I want, to, I want us to imagine if Jesus had actually decided to answer their implied question. Well, on Friday, I was brutally, brutally crucified for you, by the way. Oh, and they stabbed me just in case. And then I died, and I was pretty much dead for a couple of days. And then, and then this once-in-human-history event happened where I was reanimated, and, and the entire course of history changed, both for every individual and for humanity as a whole. I was resurrected, and here I am. How about you? What you been up to? So they, they explained to Jesus what they had been talking about. And, and Luke tells us this, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And, and what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. <laughs> I love the way Luke puts this. It's almost like he was saying, can you believe it? The women were right. 
You know, uh, sorry, ladies. Um, by the way, this is yet another reason to believe this story. Women's testimonies were not admissible in Jewish court at the time. They were not considered reliable enough. I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But uh, that if you were making this story up, you would never have the first witnesses be a group of women. And, and why did this whole thing amaze them? Come on! You know why it amazed them. It amazed them for the same reason it amazes us. If this really happened, literally everything has changed. Everything. Death isn't the end. The universe isn't a closed system. Reality is more than physics and biology and chemistry can explain. If this, if this is true, our lives are part of something bigger. There's, there's more meaning. There's more purpose. If, if this is true, we don't need to be afraid of anything. Death, the ultimate mystery, has been conquered. If this is true, Jesus is worthy of our worship, not our admiration, not what a great guy, our worship. That's why so many millions of us are captivated by it. We are staring at a bottle with the secret of the whole universe in it. And then Luke tells us that Jesus began to explain to the two travelers what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Why didn't you record that conversation for us, Luke? I'm sure Cleopas told you. I so wish I had heard that teaching time. I have to believe that this is one of those conversations that, that impacted much of what happened later. I think Cleopas and his friend might have shared this with, with others and with church leaders. And, and I think that this, this teaching of Jesus filtered out through the church. I, I think we have representations of it in the letters of the New Testament from Paul and Peter and James and, and John and, and the letter to the Hebrews. I'll bet that Jesus began with Adam. I'll bet he talked about how God, when he cursed the serpent, he told the serpent that he would make Eve's seed, singular by the way, not plural, Eve's seed. He would make him an enemy of Satan's. And, and you, Satan, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I'll bet he talked about Abraham, how God called Abraham to sacrifice his own son. And just when Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice Isaac, he saw a ram caught in a bush, and he understood that God was himself providing another sacrifice instead. And he might have told him that that event happened on the top of Mount Moriah, the same mountain on which Roman soldiers planted a cross and crucified Jesus. Except at that point, the father did not withhold the knife from his hand. He plunged it in the heart of his own son for us. He must have reminded them about King David and God's promise to have an eternal throne on which his son would sit and he would have allowed them to realize, wait, in all of the history we know, we've never seen anything like that. He probably talked about the perfect lamb that was sacrificed every year on the Day of Atonement, and he would have explained that each element of that ceremony represented something more real and more permanent than they saw. He brought up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were by King Nebuchadnezzar thrown into a furnace, and then Babylonian witnesses saw one like a son of God in the flame with them. And I think he would have mentioned over 60 prophecies about himself, his death, and the circumstances of his life throughout the Old Testament, and I'm sure... He mentioned Isaiah, who in a mysterious passage talked about a suffering servant. It's a confusing passage for Jews because it seems like Isaiah is saying that the Messiah himself will be a sufferer, that, that he will literally be bruised for our wrongdoing, that he will be despised and rejected. And Jesus' point in all of that would have been, how could you not see that all of that was pointing to something exactly like what you just saw in Jerusalem? 
Millions of our species have been captivated by this story. We stake their lives on this story because everything that God said before it points to it. And everything after it is radically changed. This story is literally the centerpiece of human history. It changes everything. The final reason millions of, millions of us have been captivated by this story is because of the impact that's made on our lives, personally, objectively, in how we live, the choices that we make, subjectively, in how we experience life and how we experience truth, how we experience God. The fact that we can experience God is because of this story. The story has changed our lives. Luke continues his account. When he was at the table with them, he broke bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. I don't even have time to talk about how incredible and bizarre that is. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I've got to tell you, I think I know how they felt. Their hearts burned within them. And my heart has burned within me in just the same way. In conversations with some of you. Sometimes in, in times of, of prayer. Or in, in times when I've been reading the Bible and I've had one of those mind-blowing aha moments. In times of singing His praise, it has burned with the recognition that this stuff really happened. My heart has burned with the implications of that. My, my heart has burned with an inner fire as if something was dead in me, but now it's come alive. A new life that wasn't always there, burning, cleansing, shaping, a fire that has changed the decisions I've made, the fire that has shaped my entire adult life. It has dramatically altered how I interpret the world, what I believe to be true, and why, and how I experience God. I first felt this fire when I was a young boy. I knew. I, I knew that some of my friends didn't know. But I knew that something about this story was real when I was 11 years old. The fire was stoked, grew hotter in me when I was a teenager. And then I tried to put it out in my early 20s. The story ceased making sense to me. How could this have happened? It's so apparently crazy. I got a text from someone a couple of weeks ago telling me that they had given up on their faith recently. They no longer wanted their children to be exposed to what they had been exposed to. Don't you understand that? I mean, it makes sense to me. I understand the Oxford professor's dismay that there are so many people who believe this crazy story. Perhaps this burning within us is just emotionality. Perhaps we're just caught up in something, the way you could get caught up in a sad movie or, or a great lecture. Or perhaps it's wishful thinking. Remember, without this, you and I are, are situated on a piece of rock that's hurtling randomly through the middle of some insignificant corner of the vast universe that's filled with empty space and meaninglessness. Who wants that? So we, we, we just make stuff up to make ourselves feel better. In other words, maybe we're kidding ourselves. I think that way sometimes. I bet many of you do as well. 
There have been periods of my life when that kind of thinking has haunted me. There's been more than one period when I've tried to commit myself to that thought process. Maybe I've been kidding myself with the Jesus story. But God's love is relentless. The hope he engenders is, as Jordan sang, living. It burns within and it will not be quenched. All of a sudden, something happens, my eyes are open, and I see very clearly that the times of doubt were the times when I was kidding myself, not the times of belief. I can't leave God because he will not leave me. Maybe I hear something in a song or, or from a friend or from one of you or on a Sunday morning or in the news or I read something or some experience imposes itself on me and, and all of a sudden my heart comes afire and I'm captivated. Has that ever happened to you? I know it has for many of you. And for those of you whose hearts have been captivated by God's intervention in history, because that's what it is. It's God intervening in history. For those of you whose hearts have been captivated, then let's celebrate. That's, that's what today is. The fire that burns within us, that's where we find life. That's the real stuff. That's the good stuff. That's what supplies us with hope. That's what orders our lives. And today, let's remember that and celebrate it. And for those of you who have never experienced this fire, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about interest. I'm talking about a fire burning within. For those of you who have never experienced that fire, I have prayed for you this week. Not that that's any big deal, but it's true. God, I long for you to experience this. Can, can, I, can I let you know, if, if you're sensing the embers of that fire this morning, please don't quench it. Don't turn away and don't be a fool. Speak to him now and allow him to speak to you. Father, you have stirred in us this morning and I pray that you will bring a light our hearts. And for those of us, Lord, who have never felt your burning within, I pray this morning that you will speak in a way that we can understand and you'll set our hearts aflame. Not with interest, Lord, but with captivation that you'll grab our lives and claim them. Because that's where we find our hope and our meaning and our purpose and our greatest pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. They got up. Luke continues. He ends this story. They got up and returned to, at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. They didn't even believe Peter. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Before we end our time this morning, I want us to read a short section from uh, 1 Corinthians. I'll explain why at the end, but I'm going to read the light print of this, and we're going to read together the dark print. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. And uh, it's verses 3 through 8. And let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. I'll read the light print intro and outro, and we will read the dark print in the middle together. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Are we stuck, Pete? Next slide. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul speaking, as to one abnormally born. Sit down for one more minute. Okay, I, I wanted us to engage in this for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is an affirmation of our faith. This is what we believe. This is the essence of what we believe. And I've said this before, but I want you to hear, Christianity is not essentially a, uh, a moral code. There's moral code in it, but that's not essentially what it is. Christianity is not essentially an ethical teaching. It's, it's not essentially religious practices. Christianity is essentially an historical fact that either happened or it didn't happen, and if it happened, it changed history. That's what we believe. The second reason we engage with this this morning is because I just want to remind you, and if you don't know, tell you, this letter, 1 Corinthians, was written very, very early. It was written perhaps as early as 50 A.D., 51, 52, 53 A.D. This would have been less than 20 years after Jesus died. And what Paul has done here is he has quoted a creed that was well-known evidently throughout the church. Imagine me this morning ending by quoting Amazing Grace and you'd all be able to say it along with me because it's well-known. He was quoting a creed, that same kind of rhythm was coming from Paul here. How old was this creed that it was this well-known? Five years? Fifteen years old? The point being... Can you see that the dating puts this statement of faith far too early to the actual events to have been corrupted by myth? How did they get to this? Millions of our species have been captivated by this story because we have reasoned it to be true. And also because it changes everything. And most of all, because it's changed us. Let's pray. Lord, I believe we hardly know what to say. I just ask one more time, Father, if there's anyone here that has not known you, that has never turned the control of their life, the governorship of their life over to you, I pray that today would be the day that they would cry out to you and they would say, Lord, I have blown it. I've sinned against you, and I thank you for Jesus and what he did. I thank you for this story, and I thank you that it's true. And they would turn themselves over to you fully. Lord, for those of us whose hearts have been captivated by this, I pray, Jesus, that you would light us up. This week, we would carry uh, the, the heat of the fire in us in everything we do. Because, praise the Lord, you are risen from the grave. And today, we celebrate that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.